Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you that in your presence the weak are made strong in the Savior's love. Lord, thank you that whatever storms we go through in this life, that you are there and you are Lord. And Lord, you will always be there and you will always be Lord right until that day when we, as we've been singing, stand faultless before your throne, dressed in his righteousness alone. So Lord, be with us now and encourage us and bless us as we think about your omnipresence. In Jesus' name, amen. It's funny to think about some of the things that some of us used to believe as children. I was chatting with Justine about this recently, and she told me that she had a friend at primary school called Robbie, and Robbie's dad was the postman. Now, she thought that Robbie's dad was the only postman, that he emptied every post box, delivered everybody's letters, and every time she came into Belfast on the M2 and passed the big Royal Mail building on Tomb Street, there it is, on a day like today, gray and cloudy, every time she went past that, she thought that Robbie's dad was the boss of that building. So she reckoned that Robbie must be pretty rich, must be pretty well off if his dad owned that great building. Of course, as she got older, she understood some of the complexities of the postal system and realized that Robbie's dad really was just the local postman. But children can believe all kinds of things, that teachers live and only exist in school. I remember bumping into a teacher in Iceland when I was about seven years old and thinking, how are you here? That doesn't make any sense to me. Or children think that people used to live in black and white because all the old pictures look that way. And sometimes children believe silly things because adults tell them silly things. Don't sit too close to the TV or your eyes will turn square. Don't swallow that chewing gum, it'll stay in your body for seven years. My teacher used to say that to me, it's nonsense. But as children learn about more of the complexities of life, they begin to dispel some of those notions. Too much screen time, no, it's not a good idea, but no matter how close you sit, your eyes will not turn square. If chewing gum was to become lodged in your esophagus or anywhere else for that matter, you would be in acute medical difficulty now, never mind seven years, which isn't true. Your body can't really break it down, but it still processes it at the same speed as anything else. As children learn more complexities, they leave some of those childish beliefs behind. But the other thing which complexity does and children's appreciation of it is that it allows children to deepen their understanding of things that they knew that were true, but they just didn't fully understand. I'll give you an example, and sorry, this is the scientist in me. When I was a teenager studying chemistry, if you'd asked me to draw you a molecule of water with all its electrons, I'd have probably drawn something like this. Now, don't worry, the details of this aren't important. But by the time I was at university, I understood the electrons in water to look something a little more like this, right? Now, you don't need to know the details in that diagram, but the point is that both are absolutely true. Both are absolutely right, but one just gives a fuller description than the other. And the reason why I'm talking about this is this is kind of what it's like with omnipresence. I'm sure if I asked many of you tonight what omnipresence means, you would be able to say what you learned as a child in Sunday school, that God is everywhere, and that's true. I can remember in my Sunday school learning about the three omnis. I'm sure you know them, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent. God is everywhere. God is omniscient. He knows everything. God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. 
all-present, all-knowing, and all-powerful. And so tonight, as we're thinking about omnipresence, it's easy for us to say, well, God's everywhere. That's it. You know, we can all go home. But the reality is it's actually a wee bit more complicated than that. And throughout the church's history, theologians have said this. A.W. Pink wrote this. I put it on the wee sheet. When we turn our thoughts to God's eternity, His immateriality, that's the fact He's not made from materials like us, His omnipresence, His almightiness, our minds are overwhelmed. Actually, it's one of these things which is incomprehensible. It's too complex for us to get our heads around. It's no wonder that when David talked about being hemmed in behind and before, the very first thing he said after that was, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Sometimes theologians say it like this. They say we can apprehend God's omnipresence, but we can't comprehend it. We can apprehend it. We can see it. We can kind of describe it and get the concept but we can't comprehend it. We can't understand it. Remember, God is incomprehensible. So, it's complicated, okay, so, but what is it? We've got the Sunday school definition down, God is everywhere, but how is He everywhere? How do we begin to describe that? How can God be everywhere when the Bible sometimes describes Him as being in one place, like in the burning bush, or on the top of Mount Sinai, or enthroned in heaven? or in the secret place where I was knit together in my mother's womb, as we read. When he was on the top of Mount Sinai, was he also at the South Pole? And if he was in both places, well, how come it looked so different? And God lives by the Spirit in believers. We believe we are temples of the Holy Spirit. But if he's really absolutely everywhere, surely that means he's in unbelievers too, doesn't it? How can that be? Is God really there when a really awful sin is being committed? when a child's being abused or something that you, you don't want to think about, but is God there? It's more complicated than your Sunday school teacher told you. But probably the, the easiest way to think about this is actually to forget about omnipresence for a moment. I know that sounds funny, but just bear with me. Forget about omnipresence for a moment. Let's think about how God is eternal, because it's just something that's a wee bit easier for us to get our heads around. He isn't governed by time. We read it in the Bible all the time that He is the beginning and the end. He's, restricted, he's unrestricted by time, not like you and me. We can't escape time. Every sentence in this sermon, every life in this room, it has a beginning and an end. But God doesn't have a beginning or an end. And whilst we can't fully get our heads around that either, we know it. God exists outside of time. He's fully free from time. He created time, and He relates to us in time. And so, we can say that God is eternal. There's no point in time when God does not exist. So, in that sense, He, he fills time because you can't go to any place in time where He doesn't exist. He exists at every point in time. Are you with me? God exists at every point in time, so He's eternal. And if we can understand that, then we can begin to understand omnipresence too. God exists apart from time, He's not constrained by time, and yet he created, in, he created it and exists at every point in it. And omnipresence is just the same, except with space rather than time. God exists outside of space. He created space. He's not bound by it. The limitations of space that we experience are, are distance and, and size and form, but God doesn't have any of those things. Because as the Bible tells us in John 4, 
God is spirit. So in the same way that there's no point in time when God isn't, there's no space anywhere where God doesn't exist. That's omnipresence. There's nowhere in time or space where God isn't. You and me, we have bodies. God created us. And through our genetics, he said that John McCracken's arm span would be this length, whatever this length is, and that he would be this tall. It's about five foot 11 and a bit. This is the only place where I exist. But God isn't limited in this way. As with time, all space contains God. He doesn't need space. He's not affected by it. He doesn't exist in its terms. He isn't constrained by it. He's the God of infinite space. He's everywhere. Now, I don't know how you you begin to picture that. I would probably suggest that we shouldn't try to picture it because we can't. But some people picture this as God just filling the whole space of the universe, or maybe the whole space of the universe plus a wee bit, because, you know, he's he's got to be bigger than the universe. But that's not the way it is. You can't contain God even in that way. You can't measure the space between God and somewhere else. And God isn't equally spread out either. He's not equally diffused like a gas. If you go into a room with a bottle of perfume, you, you close the door, the room's sealed, and you take the lid off the bottle of perfume, by the laws of physics, the, the perfume diffuses out into the room. Every part of air in the room contains the same amount of perfume after a certain amount of time. But God's not restricted in that way either. He's not spread out across His creation. He's not equally diffused throughout space. And this is the most amazing thing about omnipresence. God fills every point of space with His entire being, His entire being, not part of Him, all of Him. It's not that when we worship in Ravenhill that we have one part of God, and when somebody worships in the church down the road, they have another part. No, we all have all of God, and it's staggering. Paul put it this way when he preached at Mars Hill, in Him we live and move and have our being. He's everywhere. And even though God is in all things, He is everywhere. He is not all things. He's distinct from things that are not Him. God lives in me, but He's not me. God is here tonight in this building, and He fills it, but God is not this building. He's not the air inside this building. He's spirit. He doesn't have a body, so He isn't physically here like we are. He's spiritually here, and so He's distinct from everything here, the air, the pews, the music stand. They are all physically here, and God fills them but He is not them. Now, if I've thoroughly confused you at this point, don't worry, that's the end of the most complicated bit. I'm sorry if I have thoroughly confused you. You can go back to the Sunday School definition because like the diagram of water, both are true. Both are absolutely true. But let me try and put this as simply as I can. God created time and space, and He fills time and space. There's never a time when God isn't. There's never a space where God isn't. He's spiritually present everywhere, all of the time, in His entire being, not different parts of Him. God, in the fullness of His being, is everywhere. Here's how Jen Wilkins sums it up. God, unbound by a body, is not limited to one place. He's not merely big. He is uncontainable able to be present everywhere. 
But what about those scenarios then? Those ones I mentioned earlier where God seems to be present in one place and not in another, in the burning bush on Mount Sinai, in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember, we read that, one like a son of man in the furnace with him. Well, the answer is quite simple, and it's simply that God is free. Remember three weeks ago, we read from Isaiah 40, who's given counsel to the Lord? Who can tell him what to do? Who taught him? No one. God is everywhere, but he's free to reveal himself however he pleases. God was not the pillar of smoke by day and fire by night leading the Israelites. He was there, and he chose to reveal himself specifically in that way, in that place, but he was always everywhere. When we come to worship, maybe we're, we're singing and our emotions get stirred up and we, we have a sense that God's with us. That's a good thing. Or, or maybe we're reading the Bible and the Spirit speaks to us and we have that sense that God is especially present. Well, God's always there anyway. God's there in times when we come into church and we don't really feel anything at all. But in His freedom and in His grace, He reveals Himself in that moment. God lives in us. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. What about unbelievers? If, is God in them too? Well, yes, He is. And He shows them something that we call common grace. Common grace is the grace that He shows to everybody. This is the grace that doesn't punish sin straight away. If it weren't for common grace, none of us would be here, and none of us would be Christians because our ancestors would have died the first time they committed a sin. And common grace gives to everyone some of the blessings of God. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 5. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. But the way he acts in Christians and non-Christians is completely different. He puts his spirit in us in a way that changes our heart. God says in Ezekiel, he gives us a heart of flesh in place of the old heart of stone. And He works in us so that we would be sanctified, we'd be made more like Christ. He doesn't do that in unbelievers. He's still there. He may work in the hearts of unbelievers to bring them to Christ, but He's always there and always free. So we can speak of believers having the Holy Spirit and of God being everywhere. And yes, He's even there when sins are committed, but it's His common grace which doesn't punish this sin in unbelievers yet. And He's there when we sin, but it's His grace shown to us in Christ that doesn't punish us because Christ is accepted as perfect on our behalf if we trust in Him. Even in the worst of sins, God is there. God witnesses them all, and He hates them. He despises that sin. His anger and His wrath burn against them. He's not passive to it. He's not just there as a passive observer. He hates it. He actively hates it. But it's His common grace and His patience that doesn't punish it now in unbelievers. And it's the fact that He has punished our sins in Jesus Christ that saves us. Now, I realize I, I, I've mentioned a lot of things tonight, but I haven't really turned to the Bible very much just yet. And I want to turn to some of the Scriptures just now so that you know this isn't a fancy idea thought up by fancy theologians but all this comes straight from the Bible. And the key verses on this issue come from Psalm 139. We read them particularly in verses 7 to 10. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. 
If I make my bed in Sheol or in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your right hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. And in verses 8 and 9 there that we, that we read, we kind of have a north, south, east, and west thing going on. It's not immediately obvious. The psalmist doesn't use those words, but let's walk through it together. Firstly, we have north in verse 8. If I go up to the heavens, you are there. That's heaven. That's due north. That's up there. So many places in the Bible tell us this. Here's just a few. Psalm 123, I lift up my eyes to you, to you who sit enthroned in heaven. Psalm 97, for you, Lord, are the most high over all the earth. You're exalted far above all gods. You see that? Most high. There's, there's no one higher. You don't get higher than God. God is in heaven, and there's nowhere you can go, no matter how high up you go, metaphorically speaking, no matter how far north we go. And then south, downward, also in verse 8, if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. I always seem to come across the Bible passages which mention Sheol or Hades, which is the, the Greek equivalent, which we're maybe more familiar with. But it's the grave. It's the place in the Old Testament where you went when you died. It was represented as the depths of the earth, south, downwards. Now, of course, we know and we can read in Ephesians 4 that Jesus descended to the depths of the earth and then he ascended from there, bringing captives with him. And he now holds the keys of Hades, we're told in Revelation. So, we don't go there when we die. When we die, we go to be with him because of the victory he's won. But the point that the psalmist is making now is that no matter how far upwards we go into life, or no matter how far we sink even down into death itself, God is there. Because God isn't just in Hades, in Sheol, but God is actually in hell itself. The Bible tells us that. Sometimes people think of hell as being eternally separated from God, but that's not what the Bible says. Here's Revelation 10, verse 10. They too, that's the unrepentant, they will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of His wrath. There's a scary sentence. They will be tormented with burning sulfur or with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. The Lamb, Jesus, God Himself, He will be there exercising God's fury and wrath against sin. It's, it's chilling. R.C. Sproul once said that God is present in hell because He's omnipresent. The problem then is what He's doing there. He is there in His judgment. He is there in His punitive wrath. He is present in hell as the one who executes His justice on those who are there. That's why I say that anyone who is in hell would most want God more than anyone else to leave. Now, if you really know your Bible, you'll be thinking, John, what about 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 9? I can see you all sitting on the edge of your seats. John, what about 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 9? Because it says, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. And most of our translations say that, the NIV, the ESV, even the old King James Bible translate this as being away from the presence of the Lord. But if you look at the Greek, which I also know you're actively all doing, 
The word is prosopon, who cares? Well, that's the word for face. It's the word for face. It's not the word for presence. So, what it literally says is this, they will be punished with everlasting destruction away from the face of the Lord and from the glory of His might, which our translators have taken as a a metaphor of being outside of God's presence, but I'm not sure that that's right. Because there's this metaphor in Scripture of God's face or His smile being upon you, and that being a sign of blessing. You know the old blessing in number six, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the light of His countenance, His smiling face upon you and give you peace. And so, when God's face is upon us metaphorically, we receive blessing and we receive grace but not so when He turns His face away. So, the Lord is in the heights of heaven. The Lord is in the depths of the earth and the place of the dead. He's even in hell, but His face is, in a sense, turned away. That metaphor means that sinners no longer know the common grace of their sins not being punished yet. The Lord's face is no longer upon them, and so that means they are punished by Him with His wrath. So, we've done north and we've done south. What about the last two points of the compass, east and west? If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Well, the wings of the dawn, that's the east. That's where the sun rises in the east. And the far side of the sea, well, if you're in Israel, my geography is not that good, but if you look west from Israel, it's the Mediterranean Sea that's where the sun sets. So, wherever I go in life or death, to heaven, north, down, south, to death, wherever I go on this earth from where the sun rises to where it sets, God is there, David says in Psalm 139. There's nowhere where we can escape His presence. Maybe more succinctly in Jeremiah 23, am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Who can hide in secret places so that I cannot see them, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. There's nowhere where He isn't. God is omnipresent. So, hopefully so far we've defined that, and hopefully that hasn't been too confusing. We've looked at some of what the Bible has to say about it. So, what I want us to do just for the rest of our time together is to look at three applications of this fact that God is omnipresent. What does it mean for you and me that God is everywhere? I think, firstly, we should draw a great deal of comfort and assurance from it. The fact that no matter where we are, north, south, east, west, He's there, that's incredibly comforting. It's comforting that He's in heaven. You know, Revelation chapter 4, when John is on the island of Patmos and he's looking up, a voice calls him, come up here and he's caught up in the Spirit as if he's caught up into heaven, you know the first thing he sees? It's not who's there and who isn't. It's not the river of life. It's not streets of gold or gates of pearl. The first thing he sees is a throne, and God is on the throne. And whatever we're facing in our lives right now, there's one seated on the throne, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, judge of judges, no matter who is rejecting us on this earth, no matter how the world is mistreating us right now, we didn't worry. Yeah, okay, we might naturally worry from time to time, but ultimately, God 
is on the throne. But he's not distant. He's not only north, but he's southeast and west too. Deuteronomy 4.39, the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. He's not just in heaven, but he's near. And he's not just God in heaven, but he's God on the earth. Here are some of the most comforting words in the Bible, Isaiah 57, verse 15. This is what it says. For this is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. I just love what Stephen Lawson says about this verse. I was listening to him earlier in the week as I prepared. He says, that's the best of both worlds. You can't have a better God than this, a God who is high and ruling and reigning, but a God who is also there in the trenches with me, in the pit with me, walking with me through the valley of the shadow of death, in the nitty-gritty of life. This God who will never leave us nor forsake us, that's in Deuteronomy 32 and, um, and also in Hebrews 13. This is the God who is with us even in the valley of the shadow of death, familiar words from Psalm 23. He's right there with us when we're lowly in spirit, when we're brokenhearted, when we're really down. He's never closer to us than when we need him the most. He is, Paul says, over all and through all and in all. That's Ephesians 4 verse 6. Over all, he, he rules over all, in all and through all. He's there with us. But the second application of this means it should help us in the battle against sin, I think. Because God's omnipresence means that he sees everything. He sees every sin. Now, that might make us uncomfortable, first of all. But, you know, he's not like the criminal who cleverly chooses to commit a crime where there's no CCTV present. If you're any fans of Lines of Duty and all those bent police officers always know how to commit their crimes and not be caught on CCTV. But God can't be fooled like that. He sees everything. And as much as that is challenging, it's true and it's comforting because every sin that we commit is first and foremost a sin before God. You know, when David commits adultery, those well-known words from Psalm 51, he says to God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. I'm pretty sure he'd hurt Bathsheba pretty bad. He'd managed to have her husband killed. But he says, no, Lord, against you have I sinned. And then the prodigal son, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Notice the order there. He says, I've committed a sin against heaven first, and then I've committed a sin against you. That should really challenge us because God sees every sin. It should make us more vigilant in the fight against sin, but it should also drive us to confession and repentance because God can see it all anyway. Sometimes we think we can try and hide it from God, that we can run from it, that we'll not confess it just now, and that He'll still bless us but he knows our thoughts before they ever turn into actions. He knows our words before they're on our lips. And even so, he stands ready to forgive. So his omnipresence should really cause us to confess and repent more freely. And then we can say with David at the end of Psalm 139, search me, God, know my heart, test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and then lead me in the way everlasting. 
Yes, it should challenge us in the fight against sin, but it should also drive us to ask God to search us. It should drive us to repentance, and it should also comfort us, because only God is omnipresent in the fight against sin. Satan isn't omnipresent. Sure, he has his angels and dark forces of this world which we fight against. You know, it's like the, the World War II soldier who went to war and he came back and he said, you know, I went out and I fought against Hitler. Well, no, he probably didn't. He probably fought against some German soldiers because there was only one Adolf Hitler and he was not omnipresent. And there's only one Satan and he's not omnipresent either. He's only in one place at a time. Compared to God who is on our side, he doesn't have very much. That doesn't mean the fight against sin isn't real and it isn't hard. But the God who is omnipresent is with us. He's for us. He goes ahead of us in the battle against sin. So when you mess up, confess your sin, repent, and be comforted that not only is God willing to forgive you, but he's much more powerful than the one you're fighting. He that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. And then thirdly, we need to recognize the consequences of the fact that we are not omnipresent. We're not omnipresent. We can't be everywhere at once. And even when we are, some, when we are in a place sometimes, sometimes we're not really there. Sometimes we can be a bit vacant, can't we? We can daydream. We can be not wholly present. Have you ever been talking to someone and they're scrolling on their phone and their eyes are on their phone they're not looking at you. They're pretending to listen to you. You get the sense that they're not really with you, that they're more interested in the screen in front of them than you. But so often we want to be in two places at once. We want to be on the screen in our hand and with the person beside us. We want to be committed to our job and work on over time to get the project finished, but we also want to be with the person that we agreed to meet up with after work. We want to spend time with our spouse and we want to go out with our friends. We want to be in two places at once and we can't do it. So either someone or something gets shortchanged. Maybe we're foolish and try to do both, a quick visit here, a dash there. Or we choose one and we give it our attention, but we feel guilty, so we send the other one a message. We try to use technology to overcome the fact that we're not omnipresent. But the truth is that that's hollow. Messages can be short. They can be misinterpreted. They can be overly blunt. They can have the air of something very impersonal. And either you're going to pay attention to them and not to the person beside you. That still means that one person's getting your attention and the other one isn't. And some conversations can happen on our screens. Of course they can, but the best ones don't. Significant conversations shouldn't happen that way. The New Testament authors, I think, recognize the importance of being present for significant conversations. John said, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. Real joy in a relationship, it happens face to face. Jen Wilkin again summarizes it really helpfully. She says, there is no such thing as human omnipresence. Our newfound ways to mimic it are not the same as being there. They are not a replacement for face-to-face, -face, for being present. They can actually become idolatrous when we start believing them to be equivalent to actually being there. They're good gifts until we ask them to make us like God. Only God is omnipresent, not us. 
I hope tonight has been an encouragement and a challenge for us all, an encouragement that God is on the throne, He's closer to you than anyone else, an encouragement that confession and repentance are really freeing because God knows about our sins anyway, and He's greater than the one we're fighting, and an encouragement and a challenge to think about how you're present with others. I know that was just thrown in at the end, but we need to accept the limitations that God has placed on us as creatures, and so to embrace the real relationships we have with one another with the gift of our presence. Let's pray together. Our God, we give you thanks that we don't come to you as a God limited by space or time, that no matter where we are and no matter when we are there, that you are there. Where can we go from your Spirit? Where can we go from your presence? Lord, we thank you that the answer to those questions is absolutely nowhere. So, Lord, we pray now that as we go from this place that we would ponder these things, that we would think about how you are everywhere, that we would consider our lives before you in the fight against sin, and, Lord, draw comfort from the fact that you are there and that you know us anyway and that you love us even despite the worst in ourselves. So, Lord, help us to see that and help us to trust more fully in Jesus, in his blood shed for us on the cross, so that wherever we are, we can know your salvation, won by him. And we pray in his name. Amen.